I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. Tonight, we'll talk with a Wall Street investment banker. Not about the inflation or any of that other stuff. We'll talk about how he found God and deepened his faith through an appreciation of Western sacred art. He'll also tell us about a unique spiritual tour of the truly great Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. While there, he leads pilgrims on an adventure to see heroic virtues and struggles with temptation that affect everybody within the brushstrokes of our lives. But before we get to that, we want to talk briefly with EWTN's Peter Gagnon about some upcoming events that EW10 will be covering and that you can share in. Peter, what do you have for us this time? Well, we've got a busy couple of weeks coming up. Um, mm -hmm. It starts tomorrow afternoon. The Pontifical North American College will be having their diaconate ordinations okay. at um, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and our, our production crew in Rome will be um, filming that. So we're going to offer that to the folks, particularly those in the U.S., because um, a lot of these seminarians from throughout the U.S. are there yes. at the NAC, yes. you know, in Rome. So people. The NAC stands for the North, North American, American College. College. Yes. yes. Um, so people will um, want to tune into that and see that. And then uh, this weekend, we're going to be doing the EWTN Family Celebration. We've been promoting that yes. at, out in Phoenix. You're one of the speakers there. Yes. And um, we're actually going to be streaming all the talks on Saturday um, live on our Facebook and our YouTube pages. So those two, people can catch it live streamed. But also the following weekend, the 8th and the 9th, we'll be airing the talks. So if you don't catch the live stream, you can watch the talks. And then um, another event that's coming up is um, the actual annual sea services pilgrimage mass. It's at the Elizabeth N. Seton Shrine, and um, it honors the, those sea services, the Navy, the Marines, uh, um, the Merchant Marines, the Coast Guard. Coast Guard. Mm -hmm. And so that's a mass that's going to be um, Sunday at 3.30 p.m. And um, Cardinal Bryan's going to be uh, the celebrant uh, for that mass. So it's a, a beautiful event to honor those who are serving. And then finally, we want to look at uh, October 12th and 13th, we will bring the events from Fatima. So we have mm -hmm. the rosary in the procession from the evening before in the square at Fatima, and, and as COVID has change people can attend more so the event will be get be bigger like it has yeah. been in years past that's on the evening of the 12th and then on the 13th the mass in honor of our lady so uh you know it's an opportunity for people to make their own pilgrimage to to fatima with ewtn great so great. all these events and uh can be found on our website ewtn.com and they can see the schedules for in the times for the different areas in the world okay all sounds right. good all right. All right, we'll be back in just a couple minutes with tonight's guest, so please stay with us.
Thank you. Thank you, and welcome back. When our guest isn't busy managing investments on Wall Street, he heads down Madison Avenue in Manhattan to the largest art museum in the Western Hemisphere. It's called the Metropolitan Museum of Art. There, he and his wife, Evelyn, lead friends and acquaintances on a tour of several paintings in the museum. And that tour really has more of a pilgrimage feel to it. He says you don't even need an art history degree to look at a painting, which is good because I don't have one of those. <laughs> and through the very small details that the artist placed on each canvas, you can experience the triumphs, the struggles of each artist and his era. You catch a glimpse of his own intimate search for God or his rejection of the search. Here to tell us more about it, please welcome the author of a new book, Pilgrimage to the Museum, Man's Search for God Through Art and Time. Mr. Stephen Auth. Thank Stephen, you, Stephen, good to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Good to have you. Thank you. There, there are two elements here. You know, you have your own conversion that, you know, you're in the world of finance, and that's a busy world. It, it, there's, there's a lot of excitement and a lot of busyness that goes on there. And strikes me as having strong temptations to self-importance in that world. Would that be about right? On the money. Yeah, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> and, and you had a, a, a conversion there. What brought that about? Well, I think the Lord's always calling us Father, and yeah. uh, I'm sure he was pinging away, but as I continued to ignore him, um, you know, I'd fallen into an indifferent agnosticism after graduating from college, mm -hmm. raised a Catholic. Uh, but about 25 years ago or so, I had a near-death experience, mm -hmm. uh, electrical malfunction uh, in the middle of one of the big financial crises. And as I lay in an emergency room, intensive care ward, uh, a priest uh, that I had met came up to hear my uh, confession and give me the anointing of the sick. And that was the first confession I'd had in, in um, you know, well, I don't know, 30 years or 20 years at least. And it, it really, uh, coming away from that, he, he said, Steve, you know, you, you're a guy who's been given a lot of talents and you're using them for your purposes, not for God's. And I resolved I, I would change that. So, um, you know, that, that led to this journey I'm still on today. Still not a saint, but I know I got to be one to get into heaven, so. Yeah, they don't let the other kind in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, you know, there was one priest who used to be on lectures a lot, and he'd ask people, how many want to go to heaven? They all raise their hand. Yeah. How many want to be a saint? Uh, a few. <laughs> they said, you know, you can't get in the first without the second. Yeah. If you're not a saint, you don't get to heaven. That's it. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this, too. You know, now that you're in this process, because it, 
Conversion is an ongoing life process, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's a yeah. journey. It's yeah. not a, it's not an endpoint. Yeah, and it keeps yeah. getting deeper and richer, and then it has its you know this your falls and and trips and and we experience all that in the pilgrimage to, in the pilgrimage to the museum. Uh, you, you see, man, I think I see myself. I see a lot of people on that same journey. But I was going to ask this. Do you find that life is better with God at the center or better with you at the center? In terms of your own experience, how, do you, how would you evaluate that? Well, that was a loaded question coming from a priest. Uh, and you know, it's I don't shoot to miss. <laughs> it's absolutely the case, Father, that life is so much better with God at the center. Yeah. And um, you so see that in this pilgrimage, um, in the art, you can see the times um, in, in space and the centuries where the artist absolutely figures out his relationship with God, with mm -hmm. God at the center. Mm -hmm. And you sense the confidence and the joy at that moment. Mm -hmm. And I think all the pilgrims that come with us on the museum kind of sense that too at that moment, you know? And then just like that, you, you lose them again. Mm -hmm. You have that St. Peter moment where in a crisis, you turn the other way. Yeah. And, and, and that's what's so real about this pilgrimage to me. And it's, it's, what's, it's what life is about. And the, the key that you see in the pilgrimage is the importance of getting back up off the canvas and getting back in shape. There's this image uh, in the pilgrimage, uh, it's called the Penitent Magdalene by George Latour. Mm -hmm. And it's a wonderful image painted in the 1600s in the Alsace Valley in France, very deeply Catholic area at that time. And they had this image of Magdalene, mistaken, but at that time images her as a prostitute. But she comes back from it, it, it's a moment in time she comes back from, from her, her visit with Jesus and her conversion. And you can see she's still got her street clothes on, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the pearls, the tools of the trade, if you will, she's cast aside. And isn't that interesting? Like, you know, we have this transformation. She's sort of peacefully holding mortality in her lap, the skull. So she's at peace with this now, and she's on a new journey. So you have that joyful moment where you've been converted, if you will. But what I love about the painting is the jewels are still there. You know, they're within arm's reach. And isn't that how it is? Like in any journey, those, those habits and bad things are always out there tempting us. And she's worried about that. You can see that. And she turns her head to look at the thing that has up to then given her the most comfort, which is the, the silver gilded mirror, right? That's probably, she gets to see herself. That was her job. And she turns to look at the mirror for comfort. And instead of seeing herself, she sees the light of Christ, the two candles. Mm -hmm. And he's saying to her, Mary, mm -hmm. I'm with you. And what, one of the things about 
the, that painting, you know, the, having the skull in her lap is an important symbol. That, that this was oftentimes uh, an item that would be found on the desks of monks yeah. and, and scholars. And it reminded them of what's truly important, not unlike your own having an experience of being close to death, that the reality of death forces you to ask questions about the meaning of life. Yeah. What are you living towards? Right. Where is this going? Exactly. And she's f suddenly come to grips with that. Mm -hmm. And and it references this idea that you said, Father, about how when we come to grips with that and we follow the Lord, we're in a much better place. Mm -hmm. And you sense that calm in the painting. There's all sorts of people that stop in front of that painting. It's viewed as one of the most mysterious paintings at the Met. A lot of people don't understand it at the surface, but they still find some something about it that's calming. Mm -hmm. And there's this sense of calm, and I think it's that light of, of Christ. And you know, a, a painting that has, you know, that darkness around it is able to help you focus on where the light does shine, where, so that you look at these items, but they still won't make any sense if you don't have the background in the Bible to put it in a con and so there's a lady looking at herself in the mirror. Exactly. You know, what's, what's, no, it, it's in, this is a woman who encountered Jesus Christ. Right, so it, that is one of the, the key reason why we write the, the pilgrimage, right? Because a lot of the art history of our day tries to take God out of it. Right. And, you know, the Baroque art, this is obviously from the Baroque period where it's known for light and darkness. And the art historians get all excited about light and darkness and all that, but the title of the chapter of this chapter of the, of the book is the battle of light and darkness. From a Catholic perspective, a Christian perspective, this is the struggle mm -hmm. between good and evil. And you see the artist using light and darkness in that way mm -hmm. um, to describe that struggle. Well, this is a, a term that, uh, or a concept that, again, permeates the New Testament. If you don't understand scripture, I mean, people argue, oh, we can't teach the Bible in schools. They can't understand our history, our law, and our art and our literature yeah. without scripture. It permeates everything. And, you know, as St. Paul's the one who speaks of the kingdom of darkness, and Christ speaks of himself as the light of the world. This tension is something that we can grasp in the light of the gospel better. Yeah, and the art brings it alive. Um, in many ways, the pilgrimage is a kind of Catholic exegesis. It's a kind of art, his, art history, but it's told by a guy in the arena, you know, mm -hmm. who is struggling with these same issues. And, and so it, it has this interplay of it all that I, I think really brings, brings everything to life. The other thing, though, uh, you, you also point out 
how uh, th there are some classic pictures and paintings that depend on knowledge of God and the search for God, but you also have paintings where there's clearly a rejection of God. God seems dead or entombed. Talk about that contrast in worldviews and how that shows up in art. Yeah, well, I mean, we go through the battle of light and darkness in, in the 1600s, 1700s, and then out of that comes, the, you know, the age of, of enlightenment. I refer to it as the age of endarkenment, where, you know, the humanists declare God is dead, and it's a sort of superstition, if you will, the era of, of Frederick Nietzsche, and that begins to pervade the art. It gets inside the art. And the artists, some of them are very religious, but even so, find art very scary. Um, I'm thinking of an image by Van Gogh, which I don't know if you've got that here, but um, well, we can take as an example the image of the cathedral that you're referencing. Yes. Well, I call it God's tomb, Ron Cathedral. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this is painted by Monet, who's who's an atheist, has been raised a Catholic, but becomes an atheist, pretty well advertised. And, uh, you know, he has this wonderful image. He's painted 34 versions of this from his apartment across the street, and he's trying to show in his world um, his dexterity in how, in painting, describing light bouncing off the stone at different times of day. It's like a study in, in that, in some sense. Mm -hmm. Scientific, if you will. Um, and he chooses, ironically, a cathedral surface. And on the pilgrimage, we've been inside a cathedral earlier in the Middle Ages. On the inside, where we have the beautiful stained glass windows, you know, the mystery of heaven coming to earth and the Eucharist and all that. Um, and now the cathedral, to me, is presented as a tomb. Uh, the stained glass window is grayed out. The, the doors are closed. There's no humans walking in and out. And Monet has carefully exercised the images of the sculptures of the saints. There's 36 of them on the facade of the cathedral. Can you see any of them? Nope. He's, he's blurred them out. Mm -hmm. So I think he's saying consciously or unconsciously, God is dead. This is his tomb. And one of the things that Evelyn loves to point out at this stage is, you know, because that's kind of a dark thing to say. Uh, the irony is that even in the process of trying to paint that, he can't get rid of God. God's in the sky, in the sun. Uh, he's the creator of all beauty. It's, it's, beauty is the image of God. Mm -hmm. So even in his attempts maybe to purge him from the system, if you will, uh, he's still there with us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is part of Monet's style. You know, I, I actually like Monet. There's, yeah. there's a, uh, there was a wonderful collection of Monet at the Art Institute in Chicago because his paintings were not very popular when he was alive. Yeah. And so... I think it was Mr. McCormick, bought a lot of them at a very <laughs> low price. So now yeah. that's part of the treasure of the, the, the um, uh, Art Institute. And he's the one who is changing focus. And 
really, he loses focus. And in this case, it's losing focus on the cathedral except for the shades of light at different times Yeah, the spirituality of the cathedral's lost to him now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I contrast that. I, I read uh, a, a wonderful book about American artists who had gone over to study art in Paris throughout the early part of the American history. Uh, and American art was, uh, America was new. Yeah. So they wanted to study art. Yeah, in France. In, in France. Yeah. So that's, and the Louvre was now a museum right. open to people. So on the way to Paris from the Atlantic, they stop at Rouen Cathedral. And they're all, they said, this is Catholic, you know, superstitional, but it's stunning. They're just amazed at the beauty. Yeah, the beauty of it. And Monet has just blurred Blurred that. it out. Only, he only sees light, and again, as you yeah. say, makes it a tomb. Yeah. This is where the artist is, you know, imposing that blurring out of the spiritual. But it's not the real thing. It's not the actuality of the Rouen Cathedral. Yeah. It is filled with the life of the church, the windows, all the, the right, statues. Right, but you experience on the inside. Yeah. He's painted the outside. Yeah. And even that, he's blurred the, the holy that is on the facade with the statues and such. Yeah. All blurred out. And this is what modernity does. You know, if you leave it without God. Can we go to another theme, Father? I'd yeah. like to talk. There's this image in the uh, images in the in the in the pilgrimage of decisions that people have to make. Mm -hmm. And isn't that, you know, what life is like? These Im these these decisions that we all yes. make. Yes. And there's a whole decision series, and, I, and we have a few of them here. But I think one that I really like is the Virgin Annunciate. Okay. And see, maybe you guys have that here uh, on the on the image. Um, it's this wonderful painting by Antonello de Messina of someone having to make a decision. In this case, it's the Virgin Mary. And unlike all the other Annunciation paintings of the time, he paints Mary not just alone, but without the angel there. So the you know, it's much more real to the modern thinker, I think, this idea that the voice of God is not a telegram, you know, written down. It, right. it's, it's, a, it's a message in prayer with some ambiguity around it. Was that really God's message? Mm -hmm. And you know that the angel's there, you can see the pages of the book fluttering, and Mary is looking up, mm -hmm. and she, she looks out, and her first instinct is to hold out her hand and say, now hold on a minute here. And then you kind of see the hand curl as she's considering and listening to the Word of God and those eyes piercing, concentrating on this message, which for this young girl is not a, is not a pleasant idea. I mean, she's about to get married and now suddenly she's facing a real trial. I mean, if Joseph disowns her, She's going to be stoned tomorrow morning in the town square. And if he stays with her, 
Herod's going to be after them, and then the Romans, and the only escape hatch is this 500-mile route across a desert. And Mary's going through all this, and then she gives the ascent. And what I love about the painting, for me, that I meditate on, is those lips. I call this the Catholic Mona Lisa. This painting was painted at the same time as the Mona Lisa. Mm -hmm. And um, those lips, don't you see that yes? Like, isn't it the case like many of us in prayer kind of get this far to listen to God's message and say yes, but then we kind of forget. Mm -hmm. We don't follow through. I, I mean, I do that sometimes. Sure. And she's not going to do that, right? Mm -hmm. you, you'd put your money on the girl. Right. Right. And uh, I think to be able to look that the artist in making such a painting, also the, the way that there's so much light on her face indicates that it's coming to her from another source. Yeah. The angel, presumably. The angel, right. And, uh, and that sense of having an encounter. This is what the artist wants us to draw into so that we enter into that scene and ask how we respond when God calls us. Yeah. yeah. There's another great one uh, by Rembrandt, another decision. I call this, I like to call this Rembrandt's greatest self-portrait. And the docents of the Met kind of smirk if they hear me when I say that because it's most definitely not a, a portrait of Rembrandt's visage. Yeah. He's done 74 of them. This is not one. In fact, the Met's got several right next to it. A blind man could see this as a different person. It's a portrait of Rembrandt's soul in struggle. Mm -hmm. So Rembrandt is struggling with a big moral issue at this time. Mm -hmm. And he gets asked to paint this image of a Greek philosopher. He chooses to paint Aristotle. And Aristotle's got his right hand on a bust of Homer, which stands for virtue, and his left hand on this gold chain which if you look carefully at the little medallion hanging from the chain, it's from Alexander the Great. So this is the ill-gotten wealth of the world that Alexander has sent to Rembrandt. Uh, well, well, to, to Aristotle. Well, I think to Rembrandt, because actually the, the, the wealthy merchants of Amsterdam would, um, if you painted what they wanted, which was an interior decoration project, basically, mm -hmm. um, they gave you a gold chain. Rembrandt got exactly zero gold chains because he was trying to paint something lifting us up in some ways. He had a very deep relationship with God, I believe. Mm -hmm. So there you have Aristotle, Rembrandt struggling with, and you notice the hand is like patting virtue. It's not like grasping it strongly mm -hmm. and it's fingering the gold chain. And then you look at the tortured image of his face, which is a window into his soul. You can't tell what he's going to do. He's, he knows what he should do, but he's contemplating the cross that doing it will be. Mm -hmm. And it, this, is, this is the spiritual journey we're all on, right? I mean, it, it's a lifelong commitment and a daily struggle. This, and that's certainly the case that, you know, you, you can take, again, the, the virtue and courage 
was that Homer presented in his great books, the, the poems, yeah. the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, versus just money and, you know, and gold. And, and, and to, to have that choice, you know, something that the artist wants us to think, what will I do? That's, that's a great decision for each one of us and for Christians. It's not only going to be choosing virtue or money. It's choosing God or or the things of this world. Yeah, God or mammon. God, God or you mammon. can't serve God or mammon. That's yep. actually the prayer at the back of that card that we use after the mm -hmm. after we give the tour. Mm -hmm. um, there's another great image of uh, Pontius Pilate washing his hands, mm -hmm. which I'd love to use with folks because you have this you know, this is right after the decision to send Christ off to the cross. And you can see Christ walking out of the picture over, over Pilate's right. And you see the young servant boy looking at Pilate going like, what did you just do? Mm -hmm. And Pilate knows he did the wrong thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And he's looking out. This is sort of the conscience speaking to us, right? He's not even a Christian or anything, right? But He's looking out at us with that look. Like, well, what did, what did you expect me to do? I mean, wouldn't you have done this? I mean, you understand, it would have been a riot. I, I had to do this. It was the only thing I could do. He, he's pleading with us. And don't we do that when we do something wrong? We look sure. ourselves in the mirror and say, you know, well, could we try to rationalize it. What was I supposed to do? Um, I always tell, tell folks, you know, that's the look I don't want to have at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. The Pontius Pilate look. Not a good look. No, no. And when you think, too, of Pilate, he's the patron of cynics and relativists. You know, before yeah. that, he yeah. says, well, what is truth? You yeah. Know? And if you don't know what truth is and apparently care, then... You just wash your hands of any guilt and try to go on your way. Yeah. But it's not going to be very successful. No, and you're going to lose truth. Exactly. Exactly. Then we have the other guy, Peter. And um, this is uh, this image of the denial of St. Peter. There's another subtext. There's all these subtexts in, in the pilgrimage, but one of them is I call them last words. So this is paintings that were the last words of an artist, like the prodigal son is in there. That's Rembrandt's last painting. Mm -hmm. uh, it says something about where he was at the time of his death, I think. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, 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 Caravaggio's last painting. Caravaggio, most people know, uh, I think, you know, grew up with a very tough life as an orphan in Milan. And he, he was a violent man. He got into a barroom brawl and Rome and killed somebody. And so he was, he was often on the run, but he was an incredible talent. Yes. And yeah. uh, various wealthy patrons would give him protection in exchange for doing paintings. And so, but he keeps getting into trouble. So he's working his way around Italy, ends up in Malta and uh, has another fight. Not sure, did he kill someone or not? But certainly the, 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 the knights were after him. Mm -hmm. And then he works a deal with the Pope to be allowed back to Rome, but on the voyage dies mysteriously. 
and um, he paints this image just before he gets on the boat of the denial of St. Peter, and I, I think it is another one of these self-portrait kind of things where, um, you know, Caravaggio is struggling with this idea that what have I just done? And you can see in the image there, the woman, I mean, the darkness that surrounds the painting, mm -hmm. and the, the, the servant woman with the one denial, then the, the guard, and then to emphasize the third, Peter with the two, uh, you know, thumbs pointing at himself. Mm -hmm. And um, the thing that haunts me about this image is that face of St. Peter. Even at the moment of the denial, he realizes what he has done, and he's got the creased, anguished look on his face. And um, I think Caravaggio has this one hopeful element in it, which I think he's sort of thinking of himself here a little bit, but you see, Father, the light, how it reflects. So Christ is back in the corner there by the fire. And the light reflecting off the armor then bounces onto Peter's face. And I, I think Caravaggio is referencing his ultimate reconciliation that he has in John 21 on the shores of Galilee after, mm -hmm. the, after the resurrection. And, and Peter comes back to the Lord, you know. Yeah gets up off the canvas and becomes the founder of the church, you know, the, the leader of the church, sure. not the founder, but yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, you see, these are the kinds of things that we want to take a look at art and understand that depth because it's meant by the artists to speak to the soul and for our soul then to take that and come to God with what we actually have in our struggles. It's a very important thing. We need to take a little break. We're going to come back in a couple of minutes, but we'll be right back with you and continue on this conversation. Welcome back. We are talking about uh, a book that's called Pilgrimage to the Museum, Man's Search for God Through Art and Time. And it's by Stephen Auth. You can get this book at EWTNRC.com, our religious catalog, where it is item number 7161. So the, the, this would be a great way. Um, if you can't go to the Metropolitan and be on one of these pilgrims, because you, you lead groups of people into the museum, don't you? We do. My wife and I, and usually a, a priest as well, mm -hmm. often Father Sean or, or another priest. But um, yeah, we do them four or five times a year. Mm -hmm. But the math is just 
I mean, it's very moving for the folks that have been it, but we wrote the pilgrimage to bring it to more people. We just can't take enough people through. Uh, right, uh, right. You know, to, to hit as many people as I think it's, it's, it's a meaningful pilgrimage. Yeah, and, but just as a side point, do, um, what does the museum think about you doing this kind of guide? I mean, they're accustomed to people saying, well, here's the way the brush strokes were done, and here's the way of composition, and the kind of color that, that, that these are the technical analyses that are very important in art. Yeah. But you're doing something completely different. How does the museum respond to you doing that? Well, uh, first of all, they have nothing like this. I mean, we're the only tour that I know of that, that takes you through all 5,000 years of Western art in one evening. Um, it's pretty ambitious. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly the, the spiritual angle that we have on it is very different. Mm -hmm. But God bless them. Um, They've never stopped, you know, they, they're far from stopping us. They're, they're carrying the Pilgrimage Museum in their bookstore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And apparently having some difficulty keeping it in stock even. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they've been supportive in that sense, Father. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and when you talk about 5,000 years of art history, I mean, they have a, a really impressive Egyptian collection. Yeah all the way up through modern art. Yeah, and we start there. Um, uh, you know, we start in ancient Egypt, the tomb of Perneb, 2300 BC, because it introduces this first theme um, of the pilgrimage of, um, I call it big people, little people, this idea um, that one way to find God is to make yourself the little person and him the big person. And one way not to find God is to make yourself the big person and everyone else the little person. And the tomb of Perneb, you see, um, you know, this U-Haul following a hearse kind of thing, right? They've got all the, the little people bringing that, the, you know, Perneb's got bringing all his favorite things for his burial, for his big party in the afterlife. And he's gonna buy his way into heaven. And he has himself painted in the image of a divine, of a, of a God, really. When, you, when an Egyptian is seated, that's a, that's a God. So he's bigger than life. And, um, you know, all the little people are bringing his things. And people always laugh, you know, when I get to this point in the, in the pilgrimage, I go, well, yeah, poor Pernev, you know, you didn't get it. He ends up in the museum instead of in, a, in heaven. But, uh, you know, we all kind of do this, right? Make ourselves God in some yeah. ways. Um, there's a wonderful image later in, in the pilgrimage that Evelyn added. Uh, I resisted, as I usually do whenever she makes a suggestion, Father, I should confess, but... Um, Evelyn being your wife. Yeah. <laughs> and she goes, Steve, this is an important painting. I go, sweetie, you know, Lorenzo Monaco, he's a lesser artist, not so important. She goes, well, I think it's pretty important. <laughs> All right, well, let me take a look. You know, I go and study, I'm going like, well, she might be onto something here. And yeah. um, this is the image, uh, if you have it, Lorenzo Monaco's painting of Christ and the Virgin interceding for the sinners. Mm -hmm. And oh, yeah. it's, this is an amazing image. It's eight feet high and it's painted in 1400 at the transition between two important epics in art history, the Gothic or international Gothic style of the Middle Ages and the emerging style of the Renaissance. So the Middle Ages, Everything painted is up in heaven. It's two-dimensional. It's sort of abstract. Mm 
And then obviously in the Renaissance, it's, it's you know, spirituality brought to earth mm -hmm. and it's painted as almost as sculptures, as real people mm -hmm. um, with, with three-dimensional solidity, right? And Monaco paints this painting of um, Mary and Jesus. And Mary, of course, is, you know, holding on to Jesus like, you know, I'm, I'm your mother. I, I fed you by my breast. For goodness sakes, you've got to protect these sinners. And Jesus, in turn, is looking up at the Father, pointing to his five wounds and saying, these are the wounds that I suffered for this purpose. And, and God grants his request and sends the Holy Spirit down the love between the Father and the Son. And um, you have this very Catholic image of the divine trinity and then Mary on, on the side. And, and one thing that Evelyn likes to point out is the trinity's halos are different. If you look at them closely, they have a cross in them because they all share the passion and Mary's doesn't. So she's not a God. She's an intercessor for us with God. Mm -hmm. Very important distinction. So there's a theology here. Um, but what I really love about the thing is the way she's gently pushing us forward. And here we get to the anti-Pernev, right? You see the portraits down below. These are real people now. They're not abstract. They're painted in this new style of the Renaissance. They're three-dimensional. They're on earth. They're not in heaven. They're trying to get there, like we were saying earlier. Right. And more than that, they're not idealized images. They are portraits of real people. You can see the, the guy in red at the front must be the father. And one of the daughters has become a nun and there's a brother in there and a, a wayward uncle. And, and they're all on their knees. And what I love about this, this was an enormously expensive work. That backdrop of blue would have been done by you know, grinding down blue gemstones. Um, so th it is eight feet of it, yeah. far yeah. more expensive than gold. So who knows? I mean, maybe it cost the equivalent of you know, a million dollars or something to produce in those days. So this family is wealthy and they're on their knees as the little people before the big guy. Mm -hmm. That's the path to God. Sure, sure. That's how we find them. And in the Egyptian religion and art, you have to bring your good works and your good works have to weigh enough to balance out a feather. That was their religious belief. Yeah. Whereas in this painting, it's Christ giving himself his wounds and his blessed mother interceding uh, with him. Uh, he's the mediator, she's the co-mediatrix, and they're doing the mediatrix, that. Yeah. It, 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 in, in, in her intercession, yeah, um, very different than Egyptian religion. Yeah, and the Egyptians are trying to earn their way in. Yeah, yeah. We have a question from our studio audience. Let's take a look at that, sir. Where are you from? New Orleans. Good to have you. Welcome. Glad to be and here. What's your uh, question or comment? The question is this: I'm curious. Your life journey takes you into two different realms, which are on opposite ends of the spectrum. One in the perceived life of extravagance, the other in the simple and faith-filled life of redemption. I'm wondering how you constantly choose the God-centered life consistently. 
Well, thank you for assuming I do so consistently. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it, it is a, a, a lifelong commitment and a daily struggle. I, I have a talk I give at business schools around the country. Uh, I'm going to be up at Harvard talking on this topic uh, in, in a few weeks. And um, it's on just this idea. Like, people say to me, oh, well, I can't, these young kids in, in school, you know, I, I can't be a good Catholic. I want to work on Wall Street. And, you know, I, I say to them, well, I, if you want to be successful on Wall Street, you've you got to be a good person. Uh, you don't have to be a good Catholic. Uh, but my faith has made me far more successful than I would have otherwise been. And um, I, I think that's one of the beauties of the faith. I mean, if you think about all the great virtues of, of, of Catholicism, of our faith, I mean, self-mastery, servant leadership, agape love, self-sacrifice, uh, you know, prudence, temperance. These are all virtues that, frankly, if you want to be successful over the long haul, and I've been doing it for 40 years, help make you successful. Yeah, you could be the wolf of Wall Street and rip people's eyeballs out of their skull. But sooner or later, you're going to end up in jail, and you're not going to have long-term successful relationships. So I really challenge this idea that, and I, I know a lot of folks on, on Wall Street that um, are of that ilk, actually, that are good, uh, faithful people that have made a real difference in their world. Uh, and, you know, after writing The Missionary of Wall Street, my first book, it, it kind of drew a lot of those folks out, out of the closet, if you will. Mm -hmm. Well, why would they be in the closet? Well, people are sort of hiding a little bit, I think, mm -hmm. you know. Um, the, the, the secular world doesn't want us out in the public square. Mm -hmm. Practice your faith, you know, inside the walls, if you will. But yes. out here, this is our, our place. Mm -hmm. And um, as I always like to tell the missionaries, it's fine here inside the walls of the church. We have our prayer groups and our masses and our, you know, the thing, the, the, the sacraments that we need um, to succeed in the world. But Jesus needs us out there. Yeah, yeah. He needs us. That's the, the people that we need to help him save are out there. They're not in here. We got to go out. Something I said yesterday on, you know, the scripture and tradition was similar uh, on this point, that it's not that the world is neutral toward people of faith and virtue. It, 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 they, they don't find it easy to be neutral, say, well, if you want to be Catholic in the business world, you can you want to show virtue and promote virtue. That's up to you and all. Uh, they'll demand that we accept their sinful behavior, but they won't be as gracious towards the effect of grace. And this is something we just have to accept that that's the way they are. So we might as well just go ahead and uh, express our faith in business. Business needs virtue. 
Yeah, and I'm a big believer in witnessing the faith as mm -hmm. opposed to demanding that everyone follow it. You know, mm -hmm. that doesn't get you very far. No. And it's certain, besides that, it's illegal nowadays anyway. But um, witnessing the faith to people, uh, of all faiths, where I work, you know, we have people of all faiths and, and non-faiths in the workplace, but I think they all respect deeply a servant leader and what that means. Mm -hmm. And it, it affects the culture in a way that's very positive and enriching for people. Yeah. And it's, it's made, you know, our little corner of Wall Street one that people really like to come to work, work mm -hmm. at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, uh, there's something where you can create uh, an environment, uh, a certain culture of being the wolf of Wall Street, um, where, you know, it's not real wolves because real wolves actually have a strong family bond yeah. amongst themselves. Yeah. These are wolves that are attacking each other. Yeah. Uh, and and you, you can create that culture or you can create a culture where there's, you know, we're seeking the peace of God. And we're going to be, you have to know your business. You know, it, it's not like, well, we'll just love God and let the money pour in. No, you have to know what you're doing. Yeah. In Wall Street, you have to be good at your, your job, but you can bring the peace of Christ in with that knowledge and let that prudence and virtue work together. Yeah, and, and you know, a virtuous workplace is usually a successful one. Yeah, yeah. And you probably would find greater... Uh, longevity among your employees that they not that they would live longer you know virtuous people tend to have heart attacks less often and <laughs> later in life yeah yeah uh, the, the mean ones have them right away <laughs> that's why I had mine a few years ago <laughs> but it's but it's uh, you know uh, also that if there's a, a a healthy moral peace that people want to stay working and look forward to being at work. Yeah, uh, you know, I always say um, to to folks, uh, especially Catholics, you know, when they talk about the woke culture, um, you know, the ultimate source of wokeism actually is a very Christian concept, isn't it? The uh -huh. dignity of yeah. each person. We, we have an image here. I don't know if you brought it. Um, Juan de Pareja by Velasquez. And it's an image of the dignity of all men. And the background of the image is uh, Velasquez, who's a famous court painter for the Spanish kings, yeah. uh, is, goes to Italy on, a, on a, a mission. And the pope finds out he's there. And so the Pope says, hey, come on down to Rome. I need you to paint my, paint my image. And he has his servant with him that he's heard from his parents, Juan de Pereja. So he says, look, I'm going to practice this image on you. And he has Juan de Pereja, this um, servant from North Africa, pose as a Pope. And in the very painting of Juan de Pereja, he, you, you see that 
Velasquez understands the dignity of this man. Yes. And what's wonderful about it is when he gets back from Italy, he frees Juan de Pereja. Well, yeah, cool. And Juan de Pereja becomes an artist in his own right. Some of his paintings are in the Prado in Spain. And this, this is the, the dignity kind of, of all people. Yeah, I mean, exactly. this is exactly. You just can't destroy other people's dignity along the way. I'm afraid that we've run out of time. Uh, again, I want to encourage folks to get the pilgrimage to the museum and like to thank you for coming all this way and bless all of you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and draw Amen. you to be ever closer to Him. And again, keep us in between your gas bill, electric bill, and cable bill. If you do, we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. God bless you all and thank you for the help that makes this network possible.